welcome again to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moed Amin. It's great to have you on the show. The purpose for this show is we are helping salespeople and any professional um, elevate their skills and behavior when it comes to persuasion. So we're going to be looking at some deep science behind what it is that makes people persuasive and how do buyers react to that information and also how they make decisions as well. So as well as myself and the work that I do and the, and the principles and tools that I'll be sharing, we also have some incredible guests that come on the show with a huge amount of experience and we really look for the best of the best. And that's why I'm delighted to have our next guest on the show today. He is a renowned specialist in international sales growth. For about 33 years, he has been helping companies grow internationally and he's, he's actually conducted sales and led sales teams in about 135 countries across all seven continents, including Antarctica. His career uh, includes helping uh, you know, companies enter into new regions like the Middle East. Um, he sold used American military devices in, in Eastern Europe and Central Africa. He also sold medical technology or medical imaging technology in emerging markets in Asia. In fact, he was also a sales director of a, a company called Converse, which at the time was a NASDAQ 100 company. Now, he took on the daunting region of Southeast Asia, or South Asia, actually, to be specific. Um, and it's, it was a market that was considered by that company to be a lost cause. And within four years, he increased this, the annual revenue for that region of the business from $500,000 to over $30 million in just four years. That is a 1,475% year-on-year growth. So I'm delighted to have this guest on the show today. So please help me welcome someone who was also a guest lecturer at MIT for international sales. He has had breakfast with the Dalai Lama and he's also a certified barbecue pit master. Please welcome Mr. Zach Selch. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Word, for the kind words. That was probably the best introduction I think I've ever had. That was that was very nice. We're here so, to please, sir. We're here to please. I, I've got to ask this, and I know we're supposed to dive into the sales element, etc. But I, I've got to ask this: What does it take to become a certified barbecue pit master? What what is that? Uh, so I like to barbecue. And that's like a hobby. It's not something that you ever want to do for, for a living or anything. And um, there are two American states that the state actually runs a barbecue program, a certification program. But there's like a five-year plus waiting list to get into the, the school, right? They're run by the University of Texas and the University of North Carolina. So I put myself down on the waiting list years ago and just sort of forgot about it. And a couple of years ago, I get a call and they said, you know, somebody dropped out your name. We pulled your name out of the hat. Would you be able to come this weekend and join the course? So I, I just went and I, it was a multi, you know, the, of course, it was actually beautifully run. It's, it's not cheap to do it, but it's actually much more sponsored than, than what you actually pay for. They had, you know, dozens of lecturers. They had all different types of meats. So we barbecued and grilled, you know, uh, uh, different types of meats and whole hog and ribs and brisket, but also like lamb. 
They brought in an expert from the Heinz Corporation to talk about mixing barbecue sauces. They brought in somebody to talk about mixing rubs. They brought in somebody from the veterinary school to help us dissect whole animals. So, so like we cut down a, a steer and we cut down a hog and stuff like that. It was pretty cool. But uh, again, not something I'm going to do for a living. I um, I usually have an annual barbecue for my friends that one year got to about 300 people. But usually I, I'm, I'm only cooking for, you know, a couple of dozen people at a time. So. That, I mean, as someone who loves barbecue, um, that sounds incredible. It, it was a real experience. It was really cool. And I was, um, it was about half of the people there were people, this was like a once in a lifetime gift from their wife or something like that. And about half the people there actually ran barbecue restaurants. So it was, it was pretty cool. So that that's really, really interesting, Zach. I, I would I would love to talk to you about barbecue uh, uh, the whole time, but but that's not what that's not what we're here for. That's certainly not what our listeners are are joining us for. So so why don't we start with the with the question that I, I'm really curious about, which is how did you get into ish international sales? Because I saw one of your first roles was to help companies enter into the Middle East. Um, so I'm really curious at how you got into that. Basically, I I I was in the army, and when I got out of the army. Um, I, I worked for a little while helping train people, uh, in, in other countries, sort of what they call a contractor now. And somebody said to me, you know, I think you'd actually be even better selling than training. Would you be interested in doing it? It seemed like a great idea. I was a kid. I was like 22, 23 at the time. And the, it was the, the, Cold War had essentially just ended. The wall had just come down. And um, and so I started dealing with selling like used military hospital equipment and field hospital equipment that had been stored up during the Cold War. And I was selling it in Eastern Europe in the ex, ex countries of um of uh the, the USSR and the and the Soviet bloc. And I actually, I'll take that even a step farther. When I was a kid, I, I grew up very, very poor. And when I was a kid, I really wanted to travel. And I wanted all of my heroes were people who travel, you know, these, these characters who, like, I don't know if you, if you remember, there was a, a cartoon character named Johnny Quest, who was a kid who traveled around the world and things like that. And when I was a kid, that's what I thought about. And I thought, you know, in sales, you know, I, I said if I if you if you can sell you know beer in Western Pennsylvania, why can't I sell machinery in Africa? Right? It just sort of struck me that there was a niche there available, and I tried to get into it, and it worked. And then you know I, I leveraged one you know, and I think that's what's important for young salespeople to understand is it's it's getting into that getting your foot in the door, and then leveraging one job into another. Right? So if you do your first job well. And you work really hard, then you basically say, okay, instead of selling used equipment, maybe I can sell new equipment, right? And I can work for a small company and buy maybe my, you know, I did three, three, four startups, and then I got into a big company, a NASDAQ 100 company, right? Because I had experience. But the way I leveraged myself into the Middle East was having worked a little bit in. The so in the ex-Soviet bloc and having worked in, in Africa, 
to be honest, I don't like to say this, but but the, the economies of the Middle East were not necessarily Western economies, right? They were operating in a very similar way. So it gave me a little bit of an in, and um, I was very open and culturally savvy. Um, you know, if you, you know, again, I don't want to oversimplify, but if you read the Quran and you read some history and you're open to talking to people about their holidays and you understand their customs, and you don't necessarily have to really, you know, you don't, obviously you don't dress like the locals and you don't, you don't have to really try and ape everything people are doing, but you do have to understand and accept. And if you are that much more culturally savvy than anybody else, then people are comfortable working with you, right? Mm. And I just found people, I, I made a lot of very, very warm, close friends in the Middle East, and then leveraged those relationships to do a lot of business. And that's sort of, you know, what I've been doing forever is sort of creating these nice, warm relationships and good situations and then leveraging them onwards to create, you know, business. I mean, it's it's interesting you you mention about understanding those cultures. I mean, I, I had the privilege of, um, you know, working with uh, so many countries, you know, I was based out in the UK, but I was responsible for Europe, Middle East and Africa in a company. Uh, and so that that required me to travel sometimes up to 70 flights a year, you know, across Europe, South Africa, parts of the Middle East. Um, and that was a, a huge, and I call that a, a, that a privilege because I got to learn about all these different cultures. And in so doing, I grew as a person, my, my appreciation of other people grew. Um, talk to me about, um, you know, and you, talk, you, you said there about understanding the culture. For those salespeople that are, are either quite experienced and they want to take that, that skill set a little further, or people who are quite new in international sales and they've suddenly been told and given this responsibility that they have to uh, you know, sell the products and services abroad, what are some of the key important things that salespeople should really understand about the countries or the regions that they're responsible for? So that's a great question. I was thinking about this when you were talking in the beginning about persuasion. Persuasion is culturally, is, is related to culture, right? Because if you think about, or I'll, I'll tell you the way I think about selling. I think about selling as really having two main elements. One is uh, building rapport, right? Building a situation where somebody trusts you enough to do business with you and to accept information from you. And then the other part of that is really helping them internalize that you're going to solve their problem, right? Giving them enough information and having them internalize that information so they accept that you can solve their problem, right? And these things are related to culture. So as an example, Americans um, have an issue with, with what you would call transactional relationships, okay? Um, you basically, you go into a Best Buy and somebody's wearing a blue shirt, you hand them your credit card, right? That's it. Now, very often you see Americans and they, they'll go to a meeting and their local person will say, well, I'm going to introduce you to this guy. I have a good relationship with you. I'm going to ease you into this. And the VP for America says, well, I'm a VP. 
I, I, he should want to have a relationship with me, right? I'm the boss. But it doesn't work like that in a lot of places because you can't just go in and introduce yourself and say, you know, I'm a VP, you should have a relationship with me. Especially now, if you think about where the U.S. trades with, a lot of these countries, you know, Japan, China, Saudi Arabia, parts of Africa, a lot of these countries, the relationship, it, it takes time to build a relationship, right? So you have to think about that. There are a couple of really good books on understanding cultural indicators, right? But there are things like that, like relationships, like hierarchy, right? You know, if I, it, it's sort of funny, I grew up, I, I started doing this when I was 22, 23, and I looked like I was about 16, right? So I grew this big bushy mustache and I used to put mascara on my mustache to look older so that I had this, you know, this mustache that sort of looked like something from an Egyptian uh, movie, right? Because I wanted to look like somebody who was older. And, um, you know, so you have to think because people wouldn't do business with me if I didn't look older, right? In some of these countries. So you have to understand those things. It's also really important, in my opinion, to understand the basics of people's religion. Um, we forget how important, for instance, religion is in, in most of the world outside of the U.S. And, and, you know, the U.S. and Europe right now are very secular. Indians, you know, there are multiple religions, but most people in India are pretty religious. So if you understand their religions, you're you're in a much better position. Most of the people in the Middle East are, are more religious than Americans are. So if you understand and respect their religions, it's gonna put you in a good position. A little bit more esoteric is understanding how they internalize information, right? Are they, you know, some, and, and this can be an individual thing, but it's also a very cultural thing, right? So, um, you know, for instance, and I, I, I you don't really have time to dig into this, but for instance, the order of your slides should be different if you're dealing with people um, who are sort of an American orientation or an Anglo-Saxon orientation or uh, people who are from a French orientation and come from that educational background, okay? Because we look at information and we internalize information differently. People from Chinese culture are very often very uncomfortable with pictures of people that aren't in context. And we very often in the West will put in our marketing material or slides just a face of a person or a picture of a person. And Chinese people like to see people in a situation, right, with other people where they can understand what their job is, what they're doing, what their position is in society. So Things that you put into presentations, even our marketing material, can make people uncomfortable, distract them, and make it hard for them to internalize the data that you want them to internalize. So, so these are the type of things that are really important for people to understand when they're doing business internationally. That's interesting. Let's dig into the presentations one, because that's going to be surprising for a lot of people. Um, and it might be I don't want to say quick win, but it might be something that they can easily consider and fix, actually. Um, how would you find out 
what the order of those presentations or the nuances of those presentations should be according to a country? Is it a question of just asking people from that country and it's and you slowly build that upon experience? Or are there some are there some resources, you know, online or offline that salespeople can just quickly access and learn from? No, actually, um, I would say that if you ask somebody, um, it, you know, if you ask somebody, they wouldn't know because it's that's the, the world they're surrounded in, right? Um, so, so there are two really good books, um, which I think we can put in the notes because I, I don't want to get them messed up. Uh, but they are basically good books on studying the cultural indicators. And they each use different indicators um, in terms of how that culture works. But in one of them, they talk a little bit about, um, and then this is an interesting thing. We typically will say, this is a fact, and then we back it up. And then the, the other cultures will very often, if, if you do that, what they'll do is everybody in the room, they'll sort of think, well, that isn't a fact. No, 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 you didn't build up to that, right? So they flip it around. Now, what you want to make sure, think about, you know, and let me, let me put this into a totally different context. And this might sound very, you know, it, it, it might be very different, but let's say if you were talking to a group of Americans and you used an offensive word in a, in a presentation, think about how you would distract everybody, okay? Now, when you're doing a presentation, you don't want to distract everybody. Now, if you do something that the people in that room suddenly are a little uncomfortable or a little confused, they're not internalizing data, Okay. So for instance, some cultures, what they will do is they will they will lead up to that big slide that says this is a fact, right? They will they will give you five or six slides going up to that. And what we very often do is we start with that fact and then we give the information that leads up to that, which is the opposite, which makes some people uncomfortable. Now, on the other hand, if you were to give us a presentation to an American and you would you were to start off by saying, you know, let's say you wanted to say there's a drought in California. And you started off by saying, you know, in 1980, the rainfall was this. And in 1985, the rainfall was this. And in 1990, the rainfall was this. And, you know, a, a slow progression of rainfall deterioration causes a drought and this and this. The, ever, the Americans would all start looking at their phones by the time you got to the slide that's important. On the other hand, with French people, theor theoretically, let's put it this way again, I generalize about cultures because that's what I do, because it gives, you know, if you're going into a meeting with a group of people from France and you don't know if they all studied America or not, which again, you, you could figure stuff out, but you have to be able to take some generalizations. But if you if you start off with them and just say, well, there's a drought in California, they're going to say, well, we're, how, but you just sort of jump into that. You're assuming that. Why should we believe that, right? Whereas they would like to step up to it, whereas an American doesn't. The American wants to have the fact, 
and then maybe the backup information. So it sort of flips it around. Now you think about all the times you do presentations like that, where you're coming out and you're saying, this is a big problem. We actually teach people to do that, right? We say, start off your presentation by saying, wow, this is a big problem. Some people are gonna look at that and say, well, you haven't established that's a problem, right? So it's an interesting way of looking at it. And so in your experience, Zach, because there's a, obviously we're talking about the differences, you know, things that you need to be aware of in other cultures that's going to be different from the culture you've been brought up in and the culture that you are familiar with. In your experience, are there any universal commonalities? Because it's usually easier to start off from a common ground and slowly start to understand and appreciate the, the, the differences. So are, are there any universal common grounds that you've, that you've observed? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think, well, so let's, let's put it this way. We're in the year 2022, right? A lot of people we're doing business with, um, will have gone to a business school in the West, or they'll go to, have gone to a business school in Dubai that's run by people from the West or that kind of thing. So the, the short answer is, you know, I, I talked to this guy a while back, a few years ago, and he had picked up on this one cultural thing. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but you're not supposed to use your left hand in Arab countries, right? Because if you're a Bedouin or you're, you're a nomad and you don't have access to water, the, the left hand was always the dirty hand. Now, there are lots of people out there who are my age or older maybe, who still think of this as an important piece of etiquette. But, but the bottom line is you can go to Dubai or Saudi Arabia and you'll be dealing with a lot of people who went to Wharton or Harvard or London Business School and lived in the West and, and they know that there's, there's running water and it isn't an issue, right? But this is something he really picked up on and he said, you know, I spent, I, I spent the days terrified with my hand tucked in my pocket, right? To try and make sure I didn't do this. So my point is, we are dealing with a lot of people, the cultural differences have sort of been worn down a little bit. Now, to, to answer your question specifically, look, you know, we all love our kids. We all love our, our families. We all want to do the right thing, that kind of thing. Now, how we get there can be different. And that's the type of thing, you know, that you have to have to, have to keep in mind what people are going to do. Um, even to the point, you know, you think about running a sales organization. Um, again, I, I don't want to dig too deep into this whole cross-cultural issues, but, but these are interesting questions. So let's say you're running a sales organization in Europe, right? And you have eight or 10 different people. The way your Norwegian guy spends his money and the way your Italian guy spends his money are going to be very different. Now you, you're, let's say you're the manager, you have, to, you have to keep in mind how you communicate with them, right? Because if you go to a Norwegian sales guy who had a fantastic year and you give him a $5,000 watch, right? He, has, he doesn't know what, he, he will not wear that at home because of his friends will laugh at him, right? On the other hand, the Italian would love that watch, right? Where the Norwegian might want a vacation with his family. So if you think about those type of things, how people, what people want to do with money, how they spend their money, those type of things, as a sales manager and a sales person, 
right? Those things, you know, keeping those things in mind really help you understand the motivation of people. So that's interesting because the natural question that came to my mind when you were just describing the difference, you know, between a Norwegian and someone else, um, how, how do you build rapport with someone? Because you talked about sometimes that will take time, but there's always a ground zero moment where you can either make that an easy process or you can do something right from the start that could make the process harder or even kill kill the relationship there and then how you know walk us through if there is a process or framework you use to build rapport with someone that you're meeting for the first time well, in a perfect world i'm going to do a little bit of research on the culture before i go someplace right so i will read up and and i'll throw out a little something here um on my website I have market briefing documents for 120 countries available for free. So the first thing, and the reason I have them is these are things I prepared for myself over the years. And then I just decided I, I took them to hold them for my clients and then I decided I'd make them available. But what I like to do is basically do a little bit of research. And I don't know if you've ever done this with site profiles of people where you take your disc personality, you take the disc personality of somebody you're about to talk to and you just take a look at it before the meeting. Well, you can do that with cultures. You can say, I am very much, you know, th this is my cultural orientation. I'm going in to talk to somebody who's very, very different. I should be prepared for those differences. So I, I study up on that. I um, I very often read up on, on people's religions and so on before I go, because I, I always think that if you understand somebody's religion, it really gives you an advantage. Um, and they're, and very often their cultural history. I, I read a lot of, of what I used to call like post-colonial literature. They get these, you know, if you read a novel that was written by a Nigerian or a novel written by a Pakistani or something, it does give you also a little bit of insight. But even if you're just going in completely cold, right? Um, in the same way that when you're meeting somebody completely cold, you might want to tone down some of your stronger personality traits, right? So you want to tone down. I, you know, I um a, a, a long time ago, I actually worked with a speech therapist four or five sessions. I didn't have a very strong accent, but I had a little bit of accent. And very often I talk to people and they're like, I can't figure out where you're from. You don't have a regional American accent because I try to use. You know, I, I use short words, I use simple words. I don't have a strong accent. I don't wear, again, I don't wanna talk politics, but I don't wear a big American flag. I don't, um, you know, I don't do things, you know, very often people see me and they don't know if I'm, you know, when they see me, they don't know if I'm German or I'm Dutch or I'm American. I, I try and blend in when I'm meeting people the first time. And again, I'm, I try to, you know, be, sort of polite, uh, be a little bit, you know, be respectful, not be too loud, and then try and absorb data as fast as I can to try and figure out, you know, what the relationships are with people and stuff like that. But I'm also very much, uh, I don't push relationships on people because you can always sort of assume that if you're an American, 
your concept of relationship is faster than anybody else, right? It might not be, you know, there, there might be, you know, Saudi Arabians and the Japanese might be way at one end, but almost anybody you deal with is, is going to be slower at forming relationships than you are. So when you come in and you, you, you start treating somebody like they're your best friend and patting them on, your back, on their back, you know you're making a mistake from the very beginning, right? So that kind of thing. I want to I change the direction um, of this conversation just a tad, because up until now, we've been speaking about um, you know, salespeople going out and meeting people from across the world and, um, you know, creating business with them and, and kind of connecting with them on a cultural level. What about companies? Because, um, you know, when you look at the kind of four quadrants of growth, you know, you could probably create a new product and then take it out to market. But one of the generally least risky options and um, for growth is to take an existing product and service and grow it internationally. But yet I've, I've observed companies struggle doing this. Um, and I know that you advise a lot of companies about how to do that. So I'm curious, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see company leaders doing when they are expanding their business to another part of the world? I, I like to think of picture of Venn diagram that has the right markets, the right partners and then the right processes. And, and right there in the middle of that Venn diagram, you overlap, that's where you have success. And, and so first of all, people very often choose the wrong markets. And, and the extreme on that is I'll talk to somebody and he'll say, yeah, we've decided we're gonna go into France, Italy and Japan uh, as our first markets. And, and I'll, I'll, go, I'll, I'll go, you know, it sounds to me like your wife wants to travel to France, Germany, and Japan, right? That, that's because it's hard to think of a, mar of a product that those are the three best markets for, right? So if somebody's going into places like that that are obviously tourism spots, you know they're probably making a mistake, right? So usually when you're looking at, you know, if you sell widgets or some type of product, the, the markets that might be the very best ones for you aren't necessarily going to be fun markets or attractive, you know, attractive markets in terms of tourism, right? They're, they're going to be, a, you know, so if you think about who your ideal customer profile is, go find a market where there are a lot of people like that, right? Is there a compelling event that triggers why, you know, do people buy your product as they enter childbearing years? Do people buy your product when they're buying a new first home? Do people buy your product when there's, there are new laws that, uh, that are causing people to, you know, to, be, to buy more electric cars? Think about those types of things and then figure out where there are markets where there are a lot of people like that, right? And people screw that up all the time. I, I, I was having a conversation last week at a trade show and somebody came to me and said, can you help me? I want to find distributors in these four markets. Can you help me? I said, I couldn't do that for you, but wouldn't it be a better idea to take a step back and decide if these are the right markets? He goes, no, no, I, I know these are the right markets. I said, why? He goes, well, we thought it through and we decided those are the right markets. I said, well, what was there a strategic reason for this, right? And, and he didn't really have a good strategy. He, he just wanted to, to pay me to do some tactical work for him. And I, I felt that was really a mistake. 
So you see this, this is a big mistake. Um, the next big mistake people have is, you know, for me, if you're dealing with a relatively, you know, say an under $500 million company, you probably want to be doing this with, with channel partners. And so people get essentially random dudes to be their channel partners. They go to a trade show, they put up a sign saying distributors wanted, and they end up with people, they have no idea if these people are competent or not. They have no idea if these people have the right connections. They give them distribution. And that's probably, you know, that's just a huge mistake because then they end up hiring somebody like me to fix it a few years later. Because if you have the wrong partners, if you don't have engaged, competent, and accountable partners with the right bandwidth, you're just not going to grow to the levels you want. And then the third part, the third thing is people, you know, you say, well, if I had my direct domestic sales team, I would have a CRM, I would have a cadence of accountability, I would have specific things, but my, I, my distributors, I don't do that with my distributors because they're, you know, independent people and they're all over the world. So I'm just waiting for them to send me purchase orders. And there's no reason you know, your distributors are not your customers. Your distributors are your partners who are part of your sales organization, and you treat them as such. If they want to be, you, you give them a good reason to be your distributor, you build up mind share, but then you say to be my distributor, this is what you need to do. And part of that is accountability. Part of that is information flow. Part of that is following my processes. You know, if you do all of those things, um, you know, there, there's a reason you mentioned at the beginning, I've, I've grown organizations 100% dozens of times and, and by over a thousand percent multiple times. And it's not because I'm a magician. It's just usually because people haven't put a lot of thought into what they're doing in their international expansion and everything needs improvement. So, so by going in and, and, and improving everything a little bit, you're able to drive huge, huge improvements. And that's money, right? You know, you, you, there's no reason why an American company should be selling, you know, $100 million domestically and $7 million internationally, right? If you're selling $100 million uh, domestically, you should be able to sell more than $100 million. There are 96% of the money in the world is outside of the United States. You should be able to sell significantly more internationally if you have the right target markets, the right distributors, and the right processes and tools. I, I would love to, if we had time, dig into the distributors and partnerships, because that, that's a massive area that I think is an episode on its own. And maybe we can have you come back to talk about that, because I still hear um, sales leaders and companies really struggle to um, get any benefit uh, or get a lot of benefit out of the partnerships that they have. They tend to have one, maybe two partners that bring in the bulk of the money, but actually the other partners either are the wrong ones and they're too scared to kill that relationship, or actually they can bring in more money, but they just don't seem to be very effective at doing so. So may maybe we can come in later on because, and we can cover that in another episode, because there's there's a question I really want to ask, and that's this you've been doing this for over three decades. You've been through several recessions. Um, and for a lot of uh, people listening to this, um, this will either be their first real recession that they're kind of experiencing, 
or, or it's probably the second, the first one being COVID. Um, what's, what's your advice for sales professionals um, on navigating the recession? What are the things that have held you in good state in the past? So, so I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't have good advice for an SDR or for an account manager for, for this. But for a sales leader, I'll tell you this. Recessions aren't worldwide, right? You know, we, we take a look at this and we say, well, wow, uh, the U.S. economy was in a horrible shape. The price of oil is so high. Um, it, it's making it difficult for people to, to have, uh, you know, um, uh, disposable income. Great. What about the places where they're producing the oil? Right, they're they're rolling in money right now, right? So that the issue is when you are selling well internationally, you follow the money, and every time. So so the best example I had with this was in 2014, 2015. About 60% of my revenue was coming in from oil producing countries. And I remember at the time, my CEO said to me, you know, our cost of sale in the non-oil producing countries is higher than the oil producing countries because we're so profitable there. Maybe we should slow down our sales in these other countries and put all of our focus. And I said to him, I said, you know, that that's putting all our eggs in one basket. This, we never know. Uh, you know that what what's happening with the economy? We can't we can't trust that oil prices are always going to be high, right? Sure enough, the next year in twenty twenty in twenty fifteen, oil dropped by over fifty percent. Crude oil prices, and in a lot of these countries, that impacted the economy completely. Now, luckily, it was in the beginning of the year, and I was able to shift a lot of my resources to industrial countries, because again, when oil prices drop, industrial markets you know, do well, right? So we were able to not lose money. But in the beginning of the year, I actually sat my kids down and I said, we might, you know, you might not be going to camp this year because my sales are going down because oil prices in the Middle East are going down and we have to be prepared for this, right? We might, be, we, we might really lose some revenue this year. So the, the idea is you, you have to, first of all, spread your risk, but if you shift your resources, I mean, a lot of American products that, you know, people say, oh, you know, I'm having trouble selling my product because it was designed in 2012 and now there are competitors and my competitors have better products. Have you thought about Nigeria? Have you thought about Kenya? Have you thought about India? Right, there are markets where you your product might be a very good fit. Right, don't don't just say, well, you know, I can't sell my product in Cleveland anymore because there's a strong competitor and my product hasn't been renewed in five years. Somebody will probably buy your product if you if you keep your eyes open, you look around and you figure out where the good markets are for it. No, that's the best way to get out of a recession. Okay, that that that's super interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's really about, yeah, it sounds like basically the decisions about where you grow the business, you've got to be pretty intentional about that. And rather than looking at the small um, area of familiarity, you kind of really need to look at the world stage 
and understand those macroeconomic trends because you talked about macroeconomic trends there you know oil price and then when oil goes down industrial manufacturing tends to go well um are there particular sources that you would advise some of these sales leaders um you know always use and and read you know to my to my mind the things that have held me in good stead are you know things like and this is macroeconomic right at the stage not just you know, specific regions or countries necessarily but you know things like the financial times the economist you know foreign affairs etc are there particular go-to sources that you read or listen to uh to keep your kind of knowledge uh fresh and updated so i read the economist and and i but i'll tell you something what i don't do is like keep an eye on financial markets on a daily basis what i typically do is once a month is i take a look at at main commodity prices and main uh, uh, currency prices, right? Because it can drive you crazy if you're checking it every day. Um, just to, to keep an eye on trends. So I read The Economist. Um, I go to the World Bank website on a regular basis. It's a great indicator. It also gives you information about, about specific markets, but it gives you an idea about what's going on in different places. So you know, these, these are things, again, I wouldn't get, sometimes in business school, they teach kids to be really, really focused on the macroeconomics. And they are important, but you got to keep that in perspective, right? You know, it gives you a good idea of things like, well, where are you going to follow the money, figuring out what markets to go into and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, you don't want to be you, you, you know, it's sort of like with your, you, know, you don't want to look at your retirement fund every day to see if it's up or down, right? If you're only going to lose it in 20 years, you, you want to do it in a, in a, in a measured way, right? So you don't, you don't get too stressed out over currency fluctuations and commodity fluctuations, but you do want to keep an eye on it. That's really useful. I have to say, I mean, this, um, you know, I, I've had that, like I said, I've had the privilege of selling to multiple countries around the world, different continents, I think about four continents, not seven like you, but four continents around the world. And even I have learned a lot from just the short time that we've had. So I know that our viewers and listeners will have also learned a ton. So thank you for that, Zach. Um, quick question I want to ask you, which I ask all our guests, which is, um, you know, which three books or experts would you recommend that our listeners uh, read or follow? So I'm going to focus in on, uh, on my area, right? Where I would say that it's a good question, Lloyd, and I, I, I'm not prepared to answer it correctly because I have a couple of books that I, I, I read on culture and I use them really as, as sort of like um, really reference books. And I can't remember the names of the authors off the top of my head. I'm sorry. So I, I, I'm not I'm not good for this question right now. But I'll I'll tell you what, as a general rule, I read a lot of sales books and a lot of business books. And what I like to do is sort of mix it up. I, you know, the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot of studying for thing, on things like uh, cold calling and cold emailing and the tech stack and things like that, which has never been part of my job. But the changes in what's going on are just so fast and so brutal that um, I like to keep track of it because I know it's going to influence what's going on in any job I'm in and any team I'm working with. 
right? So I guess my, my I'm going to fudge this answer and say what's really important is to read a lot and keep an eye on new stuff and keep an eye on stuff that isn't really in your area of expertise, right? But I'll also, you can pop in the, in the um, notes of this uh, podcast. I'll get to the name of two books that I keep on my Kindle all the time and I use them as references that are really good for giving cultural indicators for different markets. And those are two that I highly recommend that anybody, uh, anybody read. What, what book have you recently read? What's the last book that you read that, that interested you and that you enjoyed? The last business book that I read that was really good was, I want to say it was called 4X, Execution 4X or something like that. And it, 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 I'll tell you, it was sort of funny. I read it a couple of years ago. I liked it. I took some notes. And then uh, about six weeks ago, I listened to it on tape. I listened to it on, on an audiobook, and I got much more out of it from the audiobook, which was uh, sort of um, interesting for me because I didn't think that was going to be the case, how much more I was going to get out of it. But it's really about execution, and it's about um, sort of figuring out how to choose specific priorities and then focusing in on those priorities to execute. And that, that was really powerful. And I'll, I'll throw out another one. I'm going to give a little call out to a, a LinkedIn friend, Justin Michael. Um, I knew nothing about the concept of tech staff a few years ago. And his focus is on the technical side of selling, which has never been my focus. My focus has really been on the face-to-face -face selling and, and the working with people. And I learned a crazy amount. That was probably the book that I learned the most from in the past five years, even though about 90% of it is sort of irrelevant to my day to day. But that was really interesting. So I think, you know, looking at stuff like that that is outside of your comfort zone is always a good thing. That was really interesting. I've I've heard, I've come across Justin Michael and I I would also recommend his, his content, especially if you want to understand the nature of the technologies out there and more importantly how you can use them in sales right now um so yeah I, I i would certainly agree with that thank you for sharing those zach um this has been a really really informative session i'm so glad that we did this um how can our viewers and listeners uh learn more about you and, and connect with you um so i'm very active on linkedin as you might know and I have a website, which is uh, globalsalesmentor.com. And I'll just very briefly tell you what I do. I work with sales leaders who are tasked with international growth. And I really help them either as a coach or doing done-for-you services to help support them. So it's pretty easy to find me. And it's also pretty easy to just grab an hour with me and chat and see if, you know, if I can help you out. With that kind of thing you can either find me on my website or find me on linkedin zach this is like i said been really really informative thank you for for sharing your time and also sharing you know trying to distill 30 33 years of experience uh within just you know 40 odd minutes but uh you know really really appreciate that so thank you for doing so oh this was a pleasure this has been a lot of fun and 
maybe uh, maybe I'll come back and we'll do that talk specifically about distributors because I think uh, the concept of channel sales and working with distributors is always pretty interesting for people. Absolutely. I think we'll have to arrange for that. So thank you, Zach. Um, and uh, thank you to our viewers and listeners. I hope this was informative for you. If you are interested in learning more around the uh, you know, neuroscience of sales and persuasion and influencing people and really understanding things from the buyer's perspective so that you can help them come, come to smarter and more profitable decisions, then uh, you know, do, con do contact me, link in the show notes below. Until the next episode, thank you, everyone. We'll see you soon.